Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Herb Podcast, a place of information and inspiration for the home herbalist. I'm Bridget Doherty of the Soledago School of Herbalism, coming to you from a bridged island on the coast of Maine. In today's show, I'm talking about why incorporating wild plants into everyday living is important for health. Before we get started, I want you to know that I'm not a doctor, nor do I diagnose or treat people. What I share is based on my own experience and what I've learned from my mentors, including the plants themselves. Ultimately, I want you to be empowered in seeking and achieving your own version of optimum health. I want you to be inspired to connect and relate to the common plants that grow all around you. Together, let's make home herbalism be as common in the everyday household as cooking a healthy meal. Now, without further ado, let's have some fun and dig in. Today I am offering a class that I recorded a while ago where I really talk about this premise behind this book, Eating on the Wild Side, and I share um, some readings from the book as well as my personal understandings and perspectives. The main point that I'm trying to get across is the importance of incorporating wild plants into everyday living because they offer so much more than our domesticate, domesticated cultivated vegetables offer. It's great that we have domesticated cultivated vegetables. We're able to grow large quantities. What, I, what we are missing is all of the micronutrients and phytochemicals, which are plant chemicals that are found in wild foods that have just by the nature of domestication and hybridization have been slowly over time bred out of our current plant foods. So it's really easy to get wild foods into our diet when we're working with medicinal herbs. Um, we don't have to necessarily go out and forage our our whole meal. Uh, that would be hard to do, and I don't know that nature could sustain that for the billions of people on this world or even millions of people um, in the United States. So it is really important that we 
can still access these wild foods, even if they've been cultivated、um, as herbs. A lot of these herbs that I like to work with, even in the nourishing infusions, stinging nettle, linden blossom, oat straw, red clover blossom, are all plants that are still true to their wild, their wild plant. Variety, genus, species, and variety—they have not been hybridized. So, by drinking your nourishing infusions, that's a great way to get these wild foods. Eating seaweed is a really easy way that you can actually buy wild food at a grocery store. Even、uh, wild berries, like blueberries and blackberries and raspberries, that are easy to harvest. And then just the act of make incorporating some of the wild weeds that grow right in your backyard into your salads、um, or into your stir fries or your omelets, frittatas, whatever. Even little bits of those throughout your meal can be really helpful. So we're gonna dive into the class that I offered, and we'll take a short break in the middle just for a minute to、uh, as a word from my sponsor. And then we'll get right back to it. I hope you find this interesting and inspiring. So let's dig in. I found this book called "Eating on the Wild Side." It's the missing link to optimum nutrition, and the book is by Joe Robinson. And it has some really interesting points in it. Joe Robinson is a woman. Author who lives on Vashon Island in Washington State, where she grows many of the highly nutritious and delicious fruits and vegetables described within this book. And the premise of the book、um, is basically that、uh, through growing and altering food, we have diluted. The wild nutrition that is found in wild food, and that our current fruits and vegetables are severely lacking. But she does say that this is like oh over a three hundred page book,、um, and she has a list of different vegetables and fruits that are the more nutritious varieties. So for every type of vegetable or fruit. She then goes into you know which varieties to look for in the store and how best to storage and cook them for their nutrition. <clears throat> so it's actually quite interesting. But the beginning, the first twenty-five pages of or so, kind of set up her whole premise that she's promoting, and I thought it tied in really well with. What we're talking about when we talk about the importance of eating wild salads, even if it's just a little bit of wild food in your backyard, and really, a lot of what she's talking about is, you know, for herbal medicine, we still use a majority, or at least I do, and I think a lot of herbalists still use wild varieties, even if they are farm grown.、Um, they're still the wild or original. Genus and species and variety of the plant, and that's why they offer so much medicine to us. So way back when we were hunters and gatherers, the medicine, our food was more like medicine because it was 
wild and it had a huge range of phytonutrients. So I would love to go kind of through this book, reading highlights and maybe commenting on some of the things that that she's talking about. So I will be reading directly from the book, from the first introduction chapter called Wild Nutrients Lost and Found. And then I'll also make my own personal side notes, which I will somehow make clear that I'm either quoting her book or, you know, this is my take on what she's saying. And I'm not going to read it, uh, the whole book, obviously, word for word. I'm just going to read, you know, I went through and kind of highlighted a lot of, I thought, the important parts of this introduction. So I hope you find it interesting. This is kind of a different way of doing these audio cla- this audio class, but I just was reading this book and it just seemed <clears throat> like I just wanted to share the information in it. And then I highly recommend checking it out uh, if, you, if it intrigues you and you want to know what specific varieties of uh, produce, vegetables, and fruits she has found to be more nutritious. So here we go. The fruits and vegetables themselves came from wild plants that grow in widely scattered areas around the globe. When our distant ancestors invented farming 10,000 or so years ago, they began altering wild plants to make them more productive, easier to grow and harvest, and more enjoyable to eat. To date, 400 generations of farmers and tens of thousands of plant breeders have played a role in redesigning native plants. So that basically is saying plant genetics from the very beginning, from when we first started cultivating plants, we've been altering them to be easier to grow and easier to eat since we began agriculture. And she continues, unwittingly, As we went about breeding more palatable fruits and vegetables, we were stripping away some of the very nutrients we now know to be essential for optimum health. Compared with wild fruits and vegetables, most of our man-made varieties are markedly lower in vitamins, minerals, and essential fatty acids. A wild plant called purslane has six times more vitamin E than spinach, and 14 times more omega-3 fatty acids. It has seven times more beta-carotene than carrots. Most native plants are also higher in protein and fiber and much lower in sugar than the ones we've devised. Some of the newest varieties of super sweet corn are as high as 40% sugar. Eating corn is this sweet, can have the same impact on our blood sugar as eating a Snickers candy bar or a cake donut. And then I would say, granted, a Snickers bar and a cake cake donut are probably more unhealthy than eating corn, but her point is that they have the same impact on our blood sugar because there is so much sugar that is easily absorbed in both of them. She continues, 
Today, most health experts agree that the most healthful diet is one that is high in fiber and low in sugar and rapidly digested carbohydrates. Low, it's called a low glycemic diet because it helps keep our blood glucose at optimum levels. Within the past two decades, plant scientists around the world have discovered another major difference between wild plants and our modern varieties. The plants that nature made are much higher in polyphenols, which are also called phytonutrients, and then another name for them is bionutrients. Plants can't fight their enemies or hide from them, so they protect themselves by producing an arsenal of chemical compounds that protect them from insects, disease, damaging ultraviolet light, inclement weather, and browsing animals. More than 8,000 different phytonutrients have been identified to date, and each plant produces several hundred of them. And then another name, I believe, for these nutrients is called secondary metabolites. So they aren't the nutrients that are important for the core functions of the plant, like the minerals or the chlorophyll would be. But these are nutrients that are specifically designed to protect the plant, almost as its own immune response to the environment that it's in that it can't run away from. And that's why uh, herbalism is so medicinal, because it provides all of these wild plants, all of these phytonutrients that, that this author is talking about. So she goes on to talk about the different benefits that these phytonutrients have proven um, by science to affect our body with. So they are, so some of the nutrients are potent antioxidants that are bioavailable. And these antioxidants provide protection against noxious particles called free radicals that can inflame our artery linings, turn normal cells cancerous, damage eyesight, increase risk of becoming obese and diabetic. And these Free radicals are also known to intensify the visible signs of aging. Other phytonutrients that are involved in the communication between our cells and other phytonutrients also affect our genes, alter our genes. A number of small-scale studies have shown that select bionutrients or phytonutrients can also enhance athletic performance. Some can reduce the risk of infection. Some are able to fight the flu. Some lower blood pressure. Some lower LDL cholesterol. Some speed up weight loss, protect the brain against aging, improve mood, and boost immunity. So there's obviously lots of benefits to these nutrients, which is why it's so important that we include wild food into our diet in some way, whether it's with herbal medicine, eating wild salads, or 
uh, drinking nourishing herbal infusions. A couple of these uh, constituents that are really become popular in mainstream and in health food store supplement aisles would be resveratrol, which is from red wine, uh, lycopene, that's the red color in tomatoes, and the anthocyanins, which are the blue color in blueberries. And she goes on to talk about um, how the nutraceutical industry is capitalizing on these phytonutrients and putting them in capsules and pills, taking them away from the plants and turning them into drugs. If we were all still eating wild plants, she says, and I would say using herbal medicine, then there would be no need for these supplements. And this is an example of where food is our medicine and medicine is our food. She gives the example that there's a species of wild apple that grows in Nepal that has an amazing 100 times more bionutrients than our most popular apples. Just a few ounces of fruit provide the same amount of phytonutrients as six large Fujis or galas. She says that some varieties of produce in our supermarkets are so relatively low in phytonutrients and high in sugar that they can aggravate our health problems, not alleviate them. She gives the uh, example of the Golden Delicious that they discovered was too low. And in this case, the universal health advice to quote-unquote eat more fruits and vegetables is woefully out of date, she says. We need good advice on which fruits and vegetables to eat. And she goes into that in, in this book. She says the latest research shows that many modern varieties of more are of foods are more nutritious than the coveted heirlooms. Uh, for an example, the golden delicious apple, once again, uh, is one hundred is a one hundred year old heirloom. The Liberty Apple, which was released seventy five years later, was twice the ex- has twice the antioxidant value. It's now clear that the date that a variety is created is not necessarily a good predictor of how it will influence our health. So she's saying that a lot of these heirloom varieties don't have the nutrition that the newer varieties have necessarily. No domesticated apple, however, she says, whether modern or heirloom, has as many phytonutrients as wild apples. We will not experience optimum health until we recover a wealth of nutrients that we have squandered over 10,000 years of agriculture, not just the last 100 or 200 years. Our ancestors became such skilled farmers that they were able to stop wandering in search of food and settle down in the first permanent settlements. That is when the agricultural revolution began the grandmother of all food revolutions when which is when we were first hunters and gatherers and then the first um, foods that were cultivated were dates and figs and then 
from there on, we just learned how to make food grow so we could have more of it and have it more easily accessible in the one place that we could live. And then we also, not only did we begin domesticating our plant foods, but we also began domesticating our animal foods. Out of an estimated 7 million species of animals, we alone had the intelligence, dexterity, and ability to plan for the future that allowed us to walk away from our native diet and create a brand new menu that was more to our liking. Therein lies the problem, she says. Our farming ancestors chose to cultivate the wild plants that were the most pleasurable to eat. The plants that were tender, low in bitterness and astringency, and high in sugar, starch, or oil. Plants that were bitter, tough, thick-skinned, dry, devoid of sugar, or too seedy were left behind in the wilderness. Why go to the trouble of cultivating plants that were unpleasant to eat? Then, as now, people knew what they wanted to eat. Sweet, starchy, and fatty food. And that's exactly what we cultivated. Those are the types of plants that we cultivated, and then we cultivated them and genetically <clears throat> engineered them, so to speak, to be more so of starchy, more so sweet, and more so oily. For the first time in our long history on the planet, we humans no longer had to eat bitter or fibrous food or spend hours every day processing our food to make it fit to eat. We were creating the food supply of our dreams. The consequences of cultivating the sweetest and mildest tasting wild plants was a dramatic loss in phytonutrients. Many of the most beneficial bionutrients had a sour, astringent, or bitter taste. Unwittingly, when our ancestors rejected strong-tasting fruits and vegetables, they were lowering their protection against a long list of diseases and troubling conditions. Throughout our history of agriculture, our ability to transform our diet has far exceeded our understanding of the way those changes impact our health and our well-being. So she's basically saying that we understood how to grow and manipulate our food to make it more pleasing to us and to really focus on these key nutrients, you know, sugar, fat, and carbohydrates, how to focus on those. And in doing so, we, did, we weren't mentally at the capacity yet and scientifically at the capacity to yet to really understand what harm we were doing to our food and that we needed those phytonutrients to maintain optimum healthy states of being. Before we continue with the show, I wanted to talk a little bit about Noom. Noom uses the latest in behavioral science to empower people to take control of their health for good through a combination of psychology, technology, and human coaching on their platform to help millions of users meet their personal health and wellness goals. A lot of people face pressures to change themselves to fit other people's expectations, and the more freeing solution is to find things that work for you. 
Noom understands that everyone's weight loss journey is unique, and what works for someone else doesn't mean it'll work for you. That's why Noom's approach adapts to your lifestyle. It's flexible and focuses on progress, not perfection, allowing you to work toward goals at a pace that's comfortable for you. So start building better habits for healthier long-term results. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash believe. Again, that's noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash believe, B-L-E-A-V. And now back to the show. So the Roman, during the Roman Empire, there were 250 generations of farmers that had already played a role in reshaping the human diet. They were already cultivating sweet root crops like beets and carrots and parsnips and cultivating less bitter greens like the lettuces or spinach, kale, whatever. And by the end of the 19th century, people around the world had created hundreds of thousands of new varieties designed to satisfy their needs and wishes. And then a hundred years later, by the 20th century, science-based, science-based breeding techniques speeded up the process. So now we know how it, scientifically more to be able to breed plants, to make them, to do something in 10 years where it took several generations prior. And to this day, on this day, plant geneticists can insert foreign genes into whatever produce, corn, beets, potatoes, and are able to create a new variety in a matter of hours. To this day, the nutritional content of our man-made varieties has been an afterthought. If the variety is attractive, pleasing to eat, productive, and disease-resistant, it's considered a triumph. Meanwhile, our bodies hunger for the nutrients that we have left by the wayside. Really, because a lot of these phytonutrients are the bitter, the astringent, the sour-tasting nutrients. They are the ones that we'd rather not eat, so we just bread the flavor out those nasty flavors out of our food, but in doing so, we bred, bred out some really important nu- nutrients that affect our body in positive ways. She says, we've been breeding the medicine out of our food for thousands of years. But she says, not only are we breeding the medicine out of our food, but we're also breeding the flavor out of our food. And fruit picked while still green and then artificially ripened is not as flavorful or juicy as fruit that ripens under the sun. In some instances, our so-called fresh fruits and vegetables are not just less appealing to eat, they are downright distasteful. Because of our farming techniques and the distance that our food has to travel to us, to many of us, um, the food is picked unripe and hard and then is exposed to different gas, you know, natural gases to ripen, 
when it's time to ripen. But in doing so, we don't ever really in the full delicious flavor of the food is never come to its full fruition either, which causes a problem in people even wanting to eat it at all. Only 25 to 30 percent of U.S. adults consume the recommended amount of fruits and vegetables. And that's mostly because they don't taste good. They're not enjoyable. So Joe Robinson, the author, says, We can't go back to foraging for wild plants. There are too many of us and not enough wilderness. Imagine the 1.6 million inhabitants of Manhattan trekking up to the Adirondacks to gather wild roots and berries. It's not going to happen. Even if it did happen, it would be a natural disaster. Just as important, few of us would even choose to eat wild plants, even if they were growing in our own backyards, she says. We are no longer accustomed to eating our bitter medicine. And this is definitely the general American public, for sure, but... Um, I hope that we are changing that together, you and I, and the people that we come in contact with and can spread the joy and love of backyard herbalism too. So again, she's saying that if we were um, able to even eat some of the wild food in our backyard, it would be beneficial for us. So she continues to say, Although living on wild plants is no longer feasible, we can, quote-unquote, eat on the wild side, which is the name of her book, Eating on the Wild Side. We can choose those select varieties of fruits and vegetables that have retained much of the nutritional content of their ancestors. So that is, you know, her solution to the conundrum of not having, of having our food bred so far away from the wild food is actually knowing which, which varieties of food is as close as we can get. So that's beneficial. And then I would say that quite honestly, one of the other best things you can do to get a daily diet of wild food or an amount of wild food into your diet daily is to drink the nourishing herbal infusions because the five herbs of the infusions that are most commonly drunk um, or drinking, I don't, that word always confuses me, um, but that we consume are wild food and that are nutrient-rich and phytonutrient-rich, and that is why they are so healthy, but we eat them in food-like quantities. So we're talking about stinging nettle, linden flower, red clover blossom, oat straw, and comfrey leaf. So those five plants, if you can incorporate them, by a nourishing herbal infusion, so you ingest one of those herbs a day in a nourishing herbal infusion where you have weighed out one ounce of the plant material, the dried, it has to be dried plant material, and you put it in a quart jar and you fill the jar with boiling water and you put a lid on it and you let it sit f overnight 
ideally, or around eight hours, and then strain it out and drink it in a day or two and keep it in the fridge when you're not drinking it, then um, you're getting a lot of these wild wild phytonutrients, which is really important. And the reason why we don't just only drink, say, nettle every day is if we can, because as she said, there are thousands upon thousands of phytonutrients that are beneficial for our body. But if we're only drinking, if we're only consuming one wild plant on a regular basis, then we're only getting exposed to 200 at the most of those, or around, we'll say, around 200 of those phytonutrients that are in the thousands. So with diversifying the wild foods that you ingest, you also diversify the amount, the numbers of phytonutrients that you ingest. She continues to say, now for the first time, food chemists are providing the information we need to know which ones that we need to know which varieties of vegetables are closest to the wild in nutrient capacity. In addition, the phytonutrients our modern produce has a wide range of other nutrients, including fiber, protein, vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, and sugar. One of the new food rules that you often hear is shop by color, selecting varieties that are red, orange, purple, dark green, and yellow. And it's true, richly colored fruits and vegetables are among the most nutritious. There are dozens of exceptions, she says. So some might have some some new varieties or maybe even heirloom varieties of fruits and vegetables may have some unique or interesting color to them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have more phytonutrients or a or a um, better range of phytonutrients than others. Depending on how you store, prepare, and cook your produce, you can either destroy their beneficial bionutrients or retain them or even enhance them. Food researchers have discovered hundreds of new ways to retain, retain the bionutrients in our fresh produce and to make them more bioavailable. It doesn't matter how many nutrients are in a fruit or vegetable if we can't absorb them. And in that, she goes into a few examples, and they all are examples of cooking. When you cook your, when you cook your food, you get more from them, especially the antioxidants and phytonutrients. So, for example, most berries increase their antioxidant activity when you cook them. She says, believe it or not, canned blueberries have more phytonutrients than fresh ones, provided you consume the canning liquid. Simmering a tomato sauce for hours the traditional Italian method, does more than blend its flavors. It can triple its lycopene content. Uh, 
and cooking carrots whole and then slicing or dicing them after they've been cooked makes them taste sweeter and increases their ability to fight cancer. And that again would be the antioxidant quality to it. So that is um, her introduction. And so I would just like to finish with the quick top five ways of quote-unquote cooking your food, which is altering it, breaking open those cell walls so that you can access the phytonutrients and other nutrition and minerals, especially from your plant food. So the first way is cooking with heat. And like they were saying, even tomato sauce cooked for three hours is going to provide you with more antioxidants than not cooked or not cooked for as long. And you can see that. Like you can definitely even see that when you think of a fresh tomato and then a cooked down tomato. It's definitely concentrated. You have a color change. You have a texture change. Things are happening. You're breaking down the food so that it becomes more bioavailable when you put it in your body. Okay, so number one is cooking. Number two is freezing. So when you freeze vegetables and fruit, the water within the cell wall freezes, expands, and bursts open that cell wall. And then oftentimes when you have frozen food, you're going to warm it up or cook it again. Um, and so then that also helps to release the nutrition. Fermentation is number three, and that is the act of fermentation is basically um, yeast pre-digesting your food for you, eating it for you and altering it in a way that you can eat it. Drying is the fourth way that you can break that cell wall and make nutrition more bioavailable from food. And so that's one way that we are able to do that when we work with our nourishing herbal infusions. They're always made with dried plant material, dried flowers, dried leaves, dried stems. And then we also expose it to heat with the hot water, but it's mostly that we're exposing it to uh, drying and dehydration. And then the fifth way is covering in oil. So when you cover a plant in oil, like say in a pesto or with a salad dressing, the longer the plant material is exposed to the oil, especially if it's uh, of a leaf or flower nature, then the faster it's going to break down. And you can actually see it have a color change and a texture change um, if it's been exposed to oil for a really long time. Like think about a salad that's fully soaked in salad dressing that you leave for a couple hours and you come back to it and the lettuce is totally soggy, wilty, broken down, partly broken down, and that's that oil breaking it down. All right, well, I hope you are able to go outside and see what fun wild foods grow in your own backyard. I will say <clears throat> that... The other really important thing about eating wild food that we don't get so much with our 
current produce and fruit model and distribution chain is soil bacteria internally in very small amounts but again like the microbes are very small so even in a small tiny tiny amount of soil if you eat that off well and you eat a plant then you're also getting a huge range of microbes that live in that tiny amount of soil and they don't um, affect us immediately uh, in a negative way but they can slowly um, if they like the environment that they are exposed to i.e. your gut then they may stay and they may if they're good hopefully they produce and make um, health promoting constituents to help protect you the soil microbes you get a tiny bit when you go outside and if you handpick some salad greens or some wild weeds and then put them on your salad without washing them heavily in water then you are getting a small amount of those microbes and those can be very uh, beneficial and can help the overall crease increase of biodiversity in your gut because as it is very similar that we want to use a range of herbs to make nourishing herbal infusions with although one at each individual time same with the gut microbes it's really nice to have from my understanding anyway a nice biodiversity of big range of different types of bacteria and yeasts and funguses and what have you all getting along ideally in your gut and able to provide you more nutrition because they can help your whole immune system and um, absorption and assimilation uh, easier those soil microbes so go outside make a wild salad uh, let us know how it goes and what you found and what you're tasting or even just go outside and just do a little grazing I love working with wild plants as medicine or even just as nourishing tonics and nutritive tonics. So you don't have to be sick to incorporate herbs into everyday life. In fact, it's better if you use them more to build health and preventatively than when you're already sick because it they just they work a lot better, I find, in building health than countering poor health, although they work great for that too. So I really like to work with wild fruits like elderberries and hawthorn berries and wild roots like dandelion root and burdock root and wild seeds like plantain seed and nettle seed and wild greens which basically any interesting, <laughs> most weeds that grow in your garden that you're already weeding out of your garden, like purslane, lamb's quarter, amaranth, dandelion leaf, yellow dock leaf, sheep sorrel. There's a huge variety. So really just 
get to know your immediate surrounding and the wild plants that grow there or the plants that you are quote unquote weeding out of your gardens and start harvesting them out of your gardens and and either nibbling on them while you're outside or incorporating them into your meals and know that you are going back to the roots of humanity and to our connection with nature and to how our bodies evolved with the landscape to live in optimum health. I wanted to let you know that uh, this on Tuesday, I was interviewed by Susan Weed on her podcast. It's in the last half hour of her show, Ask Herbal Health Expert. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can likely find that one as well. If you want to hear a conversation between myself and one of my dear mentors. Um, also, the Comfrey Conference is coming up and I am offering a class in the conference. This is a conference that's all about Comfrey. And this is a plant that has had a lot of debate around it in the herbal community for many years. And this conference is really about bringing people together to share their experiences with this plant, to let go of the fear around this plant, and to expand our connection and our relationship with it. The class that I'll be teaching is Comfrey Teaches Right Relationship, and just talking about what right relationship is, why it's important in herbalism, and how we can work with comfrey as an example and see comfrey as an example of what right relationship is and why it is important in herbalism. And I'll be talking about the history of the human relationship with comfrey. I'll be talking about the perlizidine alkaloids and allantoin and ways that I am in right relationship with this really wonderful plant. The conference is free. You can register now for it. Once the conference starts, then it will be a f um, it will cost to sign up for it. But once you have registered, you have lifetime access to all of the workshops. I think there's at least fifteen speakers, main speakers, and including Patch Adams and David Hoffman, among other really well-known herbalists. And also during the week, it's, it's the week that it is live is the beginning of May, the second week in May. And you can tune into live Zoom question and answer sessions with each of the presenters at that time. So you can just Google Comfrey Conference and it will come up or I will put the link in my show notes. So check that out. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, my website, all with the tag Soledago Herb School. And you can email me at soledagoherbschool at gmail.com if you have any questions that you or topics that you want me to address on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you. I'm Bridget Doherty. Until next week, be well, let intuition guide you, and most importantly, have fun with herbs.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.